Welcome to Mosaic once again. If we haven't met, my name is Jeff. Uh, just like Matt, I, I'm a volunteer uh, here at Mosaic. I've been here for uh, going on about four years now. Uh, thanks so much for being here uh, this morning. I'm excited to be able to share uh, with you this morning. All right, so I was thinking a little bit this week about the worst breakup um, that I've ever been through. Anybody have any rough breakups in here? And you're like, yeah, we, most of us have had. Um, some rough breakups at some point in our life. And, you know, this breakup happened about, about 10 years ago. Uh, now it was uh, back when I was living in Longmont, Colorado. I'd been seeing this girl for about a year. And, you know, we were, we were getting pretty serious. And we were kind of, you know, hitting that point where it's like, you know, are, is, is this going to be it or do we need to be done um, here? And so she invited me to come along on her family's vacation uh, to uh, a little cabin out, about an hour outside of Billings, Montana. Beautiful country up there, uh, the Billings, Montana um, area and the wilderness around it. And I think for her, you know, inviting me to come along on the family vacation, this was sort of, you know, th- this was really for her a very intentional time where she was looking to kind of reevaluate everything and say, okay, I've been with this clown for a while now. Is this somebody that I want to spend the rest of my life with? And that's a, I think that's a really good plan, except when it isn't. Because we went up there, it was a seven-day trip, and I think it only took her about three or four days to kind of figure out um, that, no, indeed, this is not a relationship uh, that I want to last the rest of my life. But that still left her with a little problem. You know, she made that decision about three or four days into a seven-day trip, and so she still has this guy up here in a cabin about an hour outside of Billings, Montana. And so what do you do with somebody under those, under those circumstances? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, there's really not a good way to handle that situation, um, I guess. You know, and it, the writing was kind of on the wall. Um, it, it, was pretty, it was pretty obvious to me. Um, what was going on, and so the trip really kind of became, you know, it, it became pretty unbearable. Um, I think everybody acted pretty maturely under the circumstances, best we could do. You know, I, I have to admit, I got a little bit grumpier when I lost games of cards um, than I normally am. Uh, you know, I took lots of long walks, uh, just anything to get me out of the cabin there, but uh, we, we all made it through it. We all made it through it. We all survived. You know, everybody was very gracious and very lovely. And finally, finally, we made it back to Colorado. And, you know, we kind of cut the tie and it was over. And I was just as emotionally exhausted as I can ever remember being in my whole life. And I think I spent about 24 hours or so just kind of stunned and in a daze and just kind of recovering uh, quietly uh, in, in my apartment. I, at the time, I was living uh, just with a roommate who really wasn't there an awful lot of the time, so I was really just kind of sitting around alone, and I was depressed, and it, it, was, it, it was an awful time. Uh, so I spent about 24 hours just kind of in a daze recovering, and about 24 hours into it, I just I kind of decided, I need to get out of here. I need to figure something out that I can do. So I called up a friend of mine, um, a a woman by the name of Nancy, 
but really, normally, I, I call her mom. She's kind of, she was kind of my Colorado mom. She's not actually my mother, uh, but she was my college roommate's mother. Um, and they had sort of, their family had sort of adopted me into the family, kind of grafted me in. Um, and, you know, I'd been over to their house. I'm sure I've had dinner at their house over 50 times um, in my life. And I just, yeah, I, I just called her up and I said, Mom, can I come over and hang out? You know, I, I just need to be with some people. Um, here, I told her what happened. This happened. Um, we just got back from the trip, and I just need to be with people. And she said, yeah, come on. Come on over for dinner. And it was wonderful. That their family, Nancy's family, she has nine kids. Um, and at the time, most of them were in elementary school or high school. And so dinner at their house was sort of this beautiful chaos. When you guys were talking about what, what dinner was like, you know, or what your eating rhythm was like growing up, who, who's, whose house was the beautiful chaos? Anybody, you know, have that growing up? How about just chaos? Anybody? Okay, yeah, there we go. A few more of us um, there. And, you know, it was still, don't get me wrong, you know, dealing with the aftermath of that breakup was still really hard, and there was still a long way for me to go emotionally. But in that moment, you know, on that night, being over at their house, them making the decision to share their table with me made all the difference in my life. And I wonder for you, if you can think of maybe some times in your life where somebody inviting you to share a table with them made all the difference for you. Maybe like me, you were going through something really difficult, you know, the end of a relationship or the loss of a job, something like that. Maybe they invited you over for dinner or brought over a growler of beer, invited you over for margaritas, um, something like that. Some way, somebody shared a table with you, you know, extended fellowship in that very intimate and special way with you. I bet almost all of us can probably think of a time in our life where that's really been a part of our story, somebody sharing a table with us or us sharing a table with somebody else. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, very, that's a very powerful thing isn't it, to be able to do that? You know, everywhere you look, in every culture in the world, cultures as different as Lincoln, Nebraska, to somewhere like Moscow, to somewhere uh, like Chicago, Illinois, to the Australian outback. Hey, Chicago, all right. Uh, You know, cultures all over the world, you know, sharing a table, inviting somebody to eat with us, you know, is this universal sign of welcome and community and extending a sense of belonging to each other. And like Bill said, we are talking about rhythms. Um, Here we are. This is week four of the series. Uh, This is week four, and we're talking about these rhythms, not, not things that we want to add on to our life, Per se, but looking at the way that we already that we already live, and looking at the things that we already do every day, and asking the question: How can we become more intentional with this? How can we how can we use the things that we do every day uh, to be a part of this kingdom of God that Jesus has called us to be a part of, given us the opportunity to be a part of this kingdom of peace and justice and restoration and love um, and you know, we, today we're looking at eating. And, you know, I think that, 
in some ways, you know, when, when Bill first invited me to be a part of this today and talk about the rhythm of eating, I thought that probably he was asking me to do this because he knows that I have two little kids. I've got a four-year-old son um, who's probably going to break out of Mosaic Kids any minute again, um, and a uh, two-year-old daughter. And I feel like I spend a disproportionate amount of my life trying to get people to eat. I'm just, you know, I, I feel like I, I spend at least an hour every day, you know, just sitting by my daughter repeating the words, sit down, take a bite, chew it up, swallow. Sit down, take a bite, chew it up and swallow. I feel like I spend, you know, a wildly disproportionate amount of my time just trying to get people to eat. But of course, when we talk about eating, we're talking about more than just, you know, shoveling food down our mouths. You know, we're talking about this act of sharing our table with other people and the way that this gives us an opportunity, like Jesus did, you know, to extend that sense of belonging, that sense of hospitality, and that sense of building bonds of peace with people that can bring. And that is something that Jesus did. That is something that we see Jesus doing pretty consistently. You know, it seems like whenever we see Jesus in the Gospels, he's either eating or he's just eaten uh, or he's, he's with people eating. And he's always, he's always with people and with different people, too. You know, we see him eating, as in the passage that Bill read a little while ago, he's eating sometimes with sinners, and he's also eating uh, with the hyper-religious uh, people. He's eating... Uh, with everybody who will have him, sharing a table with anybody who will invite him in. Uh, and it's, you know, it's so much so that more than once in the Gospels, we see Jesus actually being accused of gluttony. We see Jesus being accused of being, being a drunk. Um, so this was a major part of his ministry, and we're going to look at that passage a little bit more um, in a little bit. But I just want to say, you know, even if... You know, we have some people today, you know, we might have people here today who maybe haven't bought into Jesus, haven't bought into this whole uh, Christianity, Jesus, Bible thing. And if that's you, that's, that's okay, because I think we can all agree we all want to live in a world, you know, where there's a little bit more peace. You know, where we all want to live in a world, you know, where, you know, relationships aren't at war with each other. We want to live in a world where restoration and love win the day more often than they don't. And so, you know, when we talk about this act of sharing a table um, with somebody else, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about a way of building peace between people. And so I think, you know, regardless of where we come from today, when it comes to you know, how, how, what we think about Jesus and what we think about this whole church thing, I think we can agree that this is a good and productive thing. This is a rhythm that we all want to embrace, this rhythm of sharing our table. And so if it's such a powerful thing, and I think we all kind of intuitively get that it's good and important to do that, I wonder what is it that keeps us from doing that more often? What keeps us from inviting people in to share our table for a meal or inviting people out um, for a drink? What is it that keeps us from doing that? And I would imagine there's probably something that comes immediately to your mind when I ask that question. We're all pretty busy, aren't we? Yeah. 
yeah, we're all busy people. We've all got a lot going on. We've got, you know, we're working eight hours a day or we're taking care of kids or we're doing something. All of us are doing something um, throughout the day, you know, or we've got school and, you know, then we come home and maybe we've got church stuff to take care of. And, you know, we're, we're also trying to do enough laundry that we can wear clean clothes almost every day of the week. And, you know, it's just one thing after another. You know, there's so much going on and we're all really busy. And, you know, if you're anything like me, you know, the last thing sometimes that I want when I'm done with the day is to have more people in my life. Are there any introverts in the room? I'm, I'm one of you, you know, if, if you are an introvert, you know, then there, there are a lot, and when I say, when I use that word introvert, I just mean somebody who tends to get recharged and re-energized by, by coming away from people a little bit, by getting away from people, and that's, that's generally how I feel, but even though I am pretty busy, it's pretty rare for me to miss a meal, you know, I do tend, I do tend to still eat, three meals a day. And so I don't think that it's so much that we have a busyness problem as it is that we have a weariness problem. You know, we're all, we're all just dead tired, aren't we, from everything um, that we have going on. You know, and even if, you know, even if you're not an introvert like me, you know, even if you're a little bit more extroverted and you tend to get recharged by being with people, a lot of work can go into sharing our table, can't it? Because we feel like sharing our table means that we've got we've to cook something special and perfect. And we need to have the house looking perfect. And we need to have the kids looking something like human beings if we're going to have people over. And, and, and we're held captive by this image of perfection, that we think that we need, if we're going to have people over, if we're going to share our table, you know, that it has to be perfect. And so weariness is one reason I think that we don't tend to exercise this rhythm. But before we talk about how we address that and how we overcome that, I want to talk about something else that I think keeps us sometimes from sharing our table, from practicing this rhythm of eating and that takes us to uh, kind of a loaded church word uh, that you've probably heard before, and that word is purity. You know, and this impulse that we have for purity. And if, depending on what your religious background is, if you've been in the church for a long time, that word purity, it might be a really loaded word um, for you. It might even be kind of a triggering word for you because there's some, you know, definitely there are some parts of the church where almost everything becomes about this idea of maintaining purity in our lives. And that word, of course, you know, really purity, it just means, you know, whatever this thing is, it is completely that thing. It is completely free of contamination. A couple of weeks ago, I watched uh, a movie with my kids I hadn't seen for a while. Anybody seen the movie Wall-E before? Yeah. Um, I, I love that movie. I, I, li- I like it a lot, but there was a lot that I had forgotten about it. And I remembered when I watched it again that <laughs> my favorite character in that movie is this little robot that lives on a spaceship. Um, and it's, it's this little robot's job to keep the spaceship clean. And, you know, so he, he gets out and he kind of rolls around 
And whenever he sees any kind of little mess or a little bit of dirt, there's this little robot voice in him that goes, foreign contaminant. And like he has, he's compelled to go and clean it up. You know, and that's, that's what he does all day. That's his life. He rolls around looking, foreign contaminant, and he goes and cleans it up. And for a lot of us, we've been taught that that's what pursuing Jesus is supposed to be. We've been taught that what it means to follow Jesus is we're always on the lookout and always vigilant for any kind of mess, any kind, any kind of something that could get us dirty, anything that could make us feel stained, and we're supposed to be always cleaning that up or avoiding that or whatever. And that could be, you know, things like, you know, music or, you know, magazines that we were told could contaminate us, or it could be people as well. I remember when I was growing up, um, in the church, you know, there were always there was always this, you know, either heavily implied or even outright stated reality that there were certain people I wasn't really supposed to hang out with uh, because they were in some way going to contaminate me or damage my faith um, in some way. And this, you know, this impulse for purity it comes from, you know, it, it comes from a really heavily ingrained place in us. You know, we all kind of, you know, instinctively, biologically, you know, have this part of us, this drive within us to make sure that we're not contaminated, to make sure, you know, that we don't take anything in to our body, you know, that could, that could make us sick or could kill us. You know, and that's really where the emotion of disgust comes from. You know, we encounter something that could harm us, we encounter poison or we encounter rotting food or, uh, or vomit or some kind of bodily fluid and, you know, we, our noses turn up and we feel disgust because we instinctively feel like that's something that could damage us. That's something that we need to stay away from. And this idea, you know, this way of living becomes so ingrained in us that it starts to spread to other parts of our inner life. You know, and eventually to the point where it can be possible, and I think, you know, we've all experienced this as well, where we start to feel like there are people in our life who disgust us. You know, we've, we become afraid they're going to contaminate us in some way, either because we've been taught that they're, they're worse sinners than us and we're not supposed to be around them, or they believe something that we don't believe, and so we feel disgust and we think they're going to contaminate us with their beliefs, or they, they live in a certain way, they look at the world in a certain different way, and so we've been taught to be afraid of contamination, and so we start to feel disgust, and this purity impulse is something that keeps us from living out this rhythm that Jesus lived of sharing a table with people. And this is, you know, it's always been this way. You know, a lot of people were this way when Jesus was around as well. Uh, a lot of the religious people during Jesus' time, the people that he frequently clashed with, the Pharisees, the scribes, you know, this was really their mindset, this purity mindset. And they exercised that uh, in a lot of different ways. They exercised it physically with, you know, all these ceremonial hand washings and cleansings, um, and they... Uh, would observe, they, they would give into this purity impulse morally, not just, by, not just by following the law, but by coming up with all of these rules to go along with the law um, that would keep them from, you know, any possible kind of moral contamination or anything that would even lead them anywhere close 
to moral contamination, and they would, they would observe this purity socially as well by shunning people who could contaminate them. And that would include sinners or, or people that they considered to be sinners, uh, prostitutes uh, or somebody that they wouldn't uh, have any contact with. They definitely wouldn't uh, spend time with or share their table with tax collectors um, who were kind of considered a special class of sinner uh, because they were considered traitors um, and uh, collaborators with the Roman Empire. And then, you know, they would even shun and keep away from anybody who wasn't Jewish. You know, everybody was considered a potential contaminant. And so who they hung out with, who they shared their table with, was something pretty closely guarded. They, had to, they constantly felt like they had to be really careful about who they were going to do that with, who they were going to share a table with. So that's really what brings us to this passage that Bill read before. And we're going to read it again uh, real quick. I, we're just going to quickly observe a couple of things about this story. And then we're going to talk, you know, try to give some practical ways that we can observe this rhythm of sharing our table. All right, so this again is from Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Just a couple of things that I want to observe about this passage and about what Jesus does and about how he observes this rhythm of eating and sharing table with people. And the first is obviously, I think it's pretty clear in this passage, passage that Jesus does not let a purity impulse determine who he's going to share his table with. Here he's eating with sinners, and you know, just in case we're tempted to look at Jesus and say, you know, maybe he's just, maybe he just has, you know, more of a progressive view than the people around him uh, do. Maybe, you know, maybe. Maybe people are just misunderstanding these sinners. Jesus also would share table frequently um, with the religious, with the hypocritical, with the gatekeepers of his time. He did not limit, you know, who he was going to share a table with by something within him uh, that would feel disgust at people because of who they were, because of what they believed, because of how they lived. He just did not give in to that purity impulse, and he would share his table liberally with anybody who would have him to share a table with him. But then I also want to notice how he addresses this question from the Pharisees, and I love how uh, this exchange goes. The Pharisees, of course, don't come to him. They go to his disciples. They said, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? And the disciples go to Jesus and say, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus goes right back to the Pharisees. And he answers their question. You know, and he quotes 
this scripture from the book of Hosea, you know, this, this scripture that says, you know, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The sacrificial system was all about how do we maintain purity? And this, this scripture, you know, from Hosea, which the prophet Hosea put in the, you know, attributed to God, is God saying essentially, you know, kind of settling the debate, I am not interested primarily in you making yourself clean. That is not what I am looking for out of you. What I am looking for out of you is to live in a way that shows mercy, that lifts up the people around you. I don't want you to be concerned so much with keeping yourself uncontaminated from the world. I want you I want you to ask the question, who can I show mercy to? Who can I be with? Who can I reach out to? Who can I share a table with? Who can I extend a sense of belonging and welcome to? And I think it's really, really tempting um, for us. You know, I, you, you might be sitting here today and thinking, you know, this, this, this purity impulse thing, this, that, this really isn't a mosaic problem. Exactly. You know, we really, we really don't struggle with that here, you know, the rejecting um, sinners here. You know, we're, we're a place that's about grace here. But I want us to understand and think a little bit today about the fact that this is a pretty universal problem. All of us, everybody, one of us in here, myself and everybody sitting in here today, all of us have people in our lives, you know, that we would really rather not associate with. You know, we just tend to say it a little bit differently. We don't say that person disgusts me. I don't, I, you know, I don't, I don't like them. They're a sinner. We say things more along the lines of these people really annoy me or these people really make me mad and I, I just can't stand to be with them. You know, I think that's a little bit more how we tend to articulate this. You know, if, if you've been here for a while, you probably remember, you know, it was really just about this time a year ago uh, that we started putting together an event for election night of last year. You know, we were just kind of looking at what was going on in, in the society around us, you know, the, just what seemed like an increased polarization and divisiveness, uh, not just politically, but really in every sphere of life. And we just wanted to create an event where we could all come, around, come together around a table, in fact, um, and just kind of affirm our community together, you know, as a group that loves Jesus and is on mission for Jesus, even though we don't all see the world in the same way, um, and even though we don't all think and believe exactly the same thing, we wanted to come together to affirm that community that we share together. But I think even on that night, as much as we were conscious of that, I don't think we could have realized then what this last year has shown us. Now, I think even more so than we thought at the time, we've seen just how divided, how polarized, how separated and isolated we've become. We're divided from each other politically, and we're divided from each other racially. We're still divided uh, from each other. You know, even, even within the church, we're divided from each other, you know, on, on different ways that we believe, different ways that we see sexuality, so many different things that divide us, and so many ways that the world subtly works to keep us divided and keep us separate, keep us from being at peace with each other. 
And really what this rhythm of eating and sharing a table with each other is about, what it's about is it's an act of resistance against those forces that want to keep us from being fully with each other. These, it's an act of resistance against you know, the things within us that say, I don't want to associate with others. It's, it's a way of saying, no, I want, I want to build peace and restoration and love with my neighbor. It's a way of saying, you know, I want, I want for us to be whole. I want our relationships to be what they could be. So that's, that's how I'm starting to try to think about sharing table, sharing, sharing my table with other people. You know, it's not just an opportunity to enjoy good food with good friends. It's a way of resisting those evil impulses within me that want to keep me divided and keep me separate from the people that I tend not to like, from the people that I tend to want to avoid, the people that I disagree with, the people who, honestly, if I want to take a really good, hard look at what I'm feeling, the people who disgust me a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about how we can start to practice this rhythm of eating. What, what are some ways that we can start to practice it. I think the first thing that comes to mind for a little bit of practical advice on this rhythm of eating is first remember to rest. We talked a little bit a few weeks ago about the rhythm of rest. And if one of the things that keeps us from sharing our table consistently with others is weariness, then the remedy for that is to make sure we have a healthy rhythm of rest in our lives. You know, so if, if this is something, if this rhythm of eating is something that we need to work on, I think maybe the first step for us would be to go back to the podcast a few weeks ago when we talked about rest and what it looks like to build space in our life to really, truly, fully rest, to combat that weariness that keeps us from living out all these other rhythms. That's something that we, that we need to do because if we are feeling weary and if we are feeling just so worn out that all we can do, it's, it's all we can do to come home, get the kids in bed, and shovel some food into our mouth while Netflix is on, you know, then we're never going to really live out this rhythm of sharing our table, of eating with people. So I think the first thing that we need to think about you know, is, you know, looking once again at that rhythm of rest and making sure that we're practicing that. The second thing I want to encourage everybody to do, you know, don't be held captive to perfection when it comes to living out this rhythm of eating with each other. You know, because again, you know, we tend to think if we're going to invite people over, you know, then we have to have everything perfect. Everything has to be right, or everything has to be at a certain level. I've got to get every room in the house clean. I've got to make the perfect four-course meal with dessert. You know, I've got to have everything ready. I've got to get out the good china. You know, everything has to be, uh, everything has to be perfect. And what I want to encourage you with today is that just isn't true. You know, at some point recently, my wife Betsy and I, we just decided, you know, let's, let's have people over and not clean the house, because that's the only way it's ever going to happen. 
you know, that's, that's, the, only way, that's, that's the only way we're going to be able, you know, to do it because we just don't have, we just don't have the time and the energy right now, you know, to, to be with people the way we feel like God is calling us to, to be, you know, and to, to extend the hospitality that we think he's calling us to extend, you know, and make it perfect, every time, to make a big elaborate meal every time. You know, we've, we've started, you know, saying, hey, you want to come over? We'll, we'll order a couple of pizzas, and we'll just hang out and be together. You know, that's not something my parents would ever do, I, I, I don't think. Um, you know, but, you know, to free yourself from this idea that it has to be perfect, it has to be impressive, you know, to free ourselves from these notions of what it, what it ideally should look like is a very important way of freeing ourselves up to practice this rhythm. And then the next one is a lot like this. You know, start small. Start by doing something small. Maybe right now, you know, like we say, we don't have the energy, you know, to do a full, invite people over for a full meal. Invite people over for dessert sometime. On your way to work, grab a box of donuts. You know, take it in. You know, try to get some time with your coworkers and say, hey, I brought in some food, brought in some breakfast. Let's sit and, and talk and just be with each other for a while. You know, if, you know maybe, you're, maybe you're single or maybe you're in a, in a place right now, you, you, you just have a really small apartment and you just don't feel like you can really entertain um, right now. You know, one thing that we've started trying to do, um, we've asked friends, you know, that if they have a lot of, if they have a lot of kids, we've started um, saying, hey, we'd love to come and bring dinner uh, for your family sometime. We just want to be with you. We just want to spend time uh, with you. We'd love to bring dinner um, over and be with you sometime. I, believe it or not, people don't find that weird, it turns out. People, you know, people still appreciate that you want to spend time with them. It is still extending hospitality uh, to them to do that. You know, there are ways that we can do this without going all out. There are ways of doing this in a way that starts small. Next, I want to encourage you just to ask yourself a few questions. And this kind of goes to thinking about who do I need to share my table with. Um, And so I want to invite you to ask a couple of questions along with me. Who am I ignoring right now? Who in your life as you think about all the people in your life, who might feel ignored by you and by others and just needs some, probably feels a need for somebody to reach out to them? Maybe, maybe even worse still, who, who am I rejecting right now? Either explicitly, you know, I'm treating them or I'm talking to them in, a, in such a way where I'm trying to make them feel rejected, or just passively, I am showing them rejection in some way. Who am I rejecting? I want to invite you to just ask yourself the question, you know, who is it in my life right now that needs an invitation to share my table? For whatever reason, who just really needs that right now? Who needs somebody to extend the hand of welcome and belonging and community to them. Who needs that from you right now? You know, if you've been following the news, you know, of course, we don't know a great deal 
about the shooter in Vegas um, this last week, and I certainly uh, don't know uh, what could have possessed him uh, to take the actions that he did. Um, I feel like it's fairly intuitive to imagine that some of the things that must have been going on in in his mind and heart be, number one, a tremendous amount of anger against something or someone, and also a feeling of disconnection from the world around him and the people around him. I don't feel like I'm going too far out on a limb in speculating um, that those would probably be some of the things that he must have been feeling in order to take the actions that he did last week. And I want to invite you to imagine a world where, you know, where we're extending this sense of belonging and welcome and community to people all over Lincoln, you know, and to people all over wherever, wherever you live, you know, just making sure that people feel like there's somebody in their life who wants to be in community with them. That is a very, that's an extraordinarily powerful thing to feel like there are people who want you to be with them. That's just an extraordinarily big deal. I know it always has been for me, you know, just to know there are people in my life who want me there. There are people in my life who want to be with me, who love being with me. You know, that's, that's a tremendously powerful thing. And then finally, you know, I just want to encourage you, you know, to, to try to cultivate an awareness of how your own purity impulse works. You know, what is it in your life, what is it in your mind and heart that makes you see somebody and think, I don't want to have anything to do with them? You know, it makes you feel like, I, I just want to get as far away from them as I can. And I want to recommend a book uh, to you, honestly. You know, really, that's what this point is about. You know, it's a book that's had a tremendous impact uh, on my life. And it's a book by a guy by the name of Richard Beck, um, he's uh, a professor, um, and I'm, shoot, I'm going to get this wrong now, but I believe he's down at Abilene Christian in Texas. Um, but he's written a book called Unclean. Um, he's, uh, he's a Christian, and he's an experimental psychologist, and he's done a lot of work on exploring this idea of our purity impulse, our disgust impulse, and how it affects us missionally, how it affects the way um, that we live out what Jesus told us to do. And he examines different things. He examines things like, just for instance, you know, the way that, some of the ways that we talk about sin um, and rejection and things like that. And it's had a tremendous impact on me and the way I see the world around me. You know, it's had, just for example, it's had a tremendous impact. Um, I work as the chaplain at the Lincoln Correctional Center here in town. It's had, it's had a tremendous impact on how I see the inmate population and how I, how I recognize certain things in myself creeping up in the way that I interact with them. So I, I just want to recommend um, that book to you. Um, it's available on Amazon. You can get it on Kindle. It's pretty cheap. Um, but it's been very, very effective uh, for me. But now as I invite Ben and Keith to come on back up uh, here, uh, we're going to enter into a time of communion together. And this is a great day uh, to do communion together because really what communion is, 
is it's Jesus inviting us to share a table with him. It's Jesus coming to us and saying, I want you to be with me. I want you, you know, to be a part of my kingdom, and I want to be in fellowship and communion with you. You know, so he invites us to come to the table and eat the bread as a memorial of his body that he allowed to be broken on the cross for us and invites us to take the cup as a memorial of his blood that he shed for us for the redemption of our sins. And I want you to remember that as we come today and the way that we do communion here at Mosaic, if you've never been here for it before, uh, you know, when, when the music plays, you can feel free to come up to one of the tables here at front. And there's one in the back as well. Take the bread, you can dip it in the cup and take the two together. And I want to invite you to remember and just think about Jesus has invited us to his table, to share his table with him. And think about who can you share your table with. And so I invite you to come to the table today and think about that.